May be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah 13, come to the last chapter. It's a long chapter, and I still thought I was going to try to cover it all in one week, but it's not going to happen. So I am going to actually do the opposite. I'm going to extend it from one sermon into five sermons. Um, Part of that is because as I was going through it, there really are um, just very clearly five different ideas that I that I think we can focus on but also um, I'll be in and out like I'll be at general assembly I'll have a um, we have to review presbytery records uh, one week so I'm gone two two weeks uh, for that and so instead of breaking up the beginning of our series in Hebrews I thought we would just extend this one and um, and then that way we can really focus on Hebrews uh, several weeks in a row. But we're going to look at Hebrews, I mean, sorry, Nehemiah 13, verses 1 through 3 this morning. Um, And I've called this part one of cleansing the temple. I think this theme kind of comes down all the way through verse 14. Um, So we'll pick up part two next week. But as I was thinking about how to how to get our mindset into some kind of recognition of what's taking place here, I was thinking about the frustration with watching movies today. One of the biggest frustrations I have, and I think you might relate to it, is wading through all of the options. There are so many different options, so many different streaming services that you can look to, and the the recommendations are literally all over the place. You pull up this the service, and, and it tells you about categories you don't care anything about, that, that you should watch a movie from that category, and you should give that one a try. And, and you know, they're not organized in a way that I would like or prefer. Um, so I end up finding these, like, selections usually through looking at ratings, right? So, and I'm kind of a rater myself. I like to know what, you know, go through and my family gives me a hard time about that you know that's about a four star out of five um, but usually I'll base my movie you know recommendation off of that or off of those recommendations on like Rotten Tomatoes that I think is helpful it gives you a consensus from the experts and then it gives you one from the just the typical audience and sometimes they're vastly different right the experts absolutely hate a movie or they destroy it for all these various reasons and an audience just loves it and raves about it um, Typically, what that means is that the movie doesn't have a happy ending. That's a spoiler alert for you if you've not used Rotten Tomatoes before. If you see a really radical disparity between the expert's opinion and the audience, it's because, one, it's it's just not very realistic, and the audience tends to favor those movies, right, that that give you a happy ending even though it's not likely uh, to have taken place that way, right? Um, Well... As we've worked our way to this conclusion in Nehemiah, we've been riding a wave of excitement and revival. The people completed the wall of Jerusalem. In Nehemiah 6:15, it transformed the shame and despair that opened the book. That, that, that was heavy upon Nehemiah's heart as he prepared to go and to become the governor in Jerusalem for 12 years, as we'll consider later. Right, so he is, he, is, he is burdened with the, the despair and the shame that the people feel in Jerusalem. And that's how the book opened. 
And now we're at the end of chapter 12 and we are at the pinnacle of excitement. They've, the walls have been dedicated, people have been celebrating, they've been making commitments above and beyond what they've ever done in the past. They invited Ezra to read from the book of the law uh, and then he did, he took the law of Moses and for five to six hours he read to them as what appears to be them standing and listening with attentive hearts, responding with praise and confession of sin. It's this catalyst for covenant renewal in Nehemiah chapter 8. And then as the people heard the word of God, they are convicted. And the day after hearing it for five to six hours, they come back. All the, the leaders of the tribes and the, the chiefs of the families, they come together to ask Ezra to read some more. Read more of God's word. So he reads to them the passage of the Feast of Booths, probably knowing that that's going to convict them that they haven't been celebrating it properly. And that's exactly what they do, right? They read it, they listen, and they're, they're convicted that in two weeks they need to celebrate this Feast of Booths and do it properly this time. And so they send out people and they get excited about this, right? But all of the, the while, there's this balance, right? This sort of roller coaster of emotions where they're excited and praising God joyfully, uh, for his abundant blessings in their lives and also convicted, cut to the heart for their own sinfulness. The people heard the word of God and it changed their lives. Um, after celebrating the Feast of Booths, which was on their Jewish calendar, this calendar on that month would have been one of the busiest months on the Jewish calendar. But after celebrating the Feast of Booze for a week, <clears throat> two days later, they gather again on, a, on an unscheduled day. There's nothing on the calendar about this day that they gather together and they do it for corporate confession. It's obvious that their hearts had been so burdened. They wanted a time set apart just to praise God and to confess how they have fallen short of his glory and to confess their sin together. And so they confess the sins of their nation. They confess their own personal sins. They confess the ways they've broken covenant with God. And this gathering was, was mixed, as I said, with praise and just fellowship, enjoying the community of the saints. <clears throat> and so it's not surprising that after that, they, they begin to renew their commitments. So you have this, really the whole first half of the book is focused on the walls, rebuilding the walls. Next section is on revival, how their hearts are being stirred and challenged. And then the latter part of the book is about how they get organized. And it's, the, it's, it's how they establish and maintain the centrality of worship. And so, it's, so they renew their commitments, their convictions. They, they adopt God's convictions and restrictions and his obligations above their own. They agree to prioritize um, the worship, the centrality of worship within their community. And so they committed to give generously to the work. They committed their time to the work. They committed, uh, you know, in, in people in their community to specific tasks and jobs to organize and oversee. Um, so the, con the conclusion of, of section 10, of chapter 10, says this, we will not neglect the house of our God. They are, they are confident we will not neglect the house of our God. And you can almost see what's coming. The people took their commitment seriously. 
So they declare their commitment formally before the assembly, but they reorganize uh, their, their lifestyles. They establish new routines in order to keep worship at the center. And you can read all about that in chapter 11 through 1226. And then we looked at the last week, the dedication of the temple. Just, just jubilation, filled with joy and celebration, anticipating the day, uh, building that with their, their own preparation for the day, um, experiencing joy as they're singing together. Remember, they marched around with two choirs around the wall of the city, met in the temple, gathered under those two choirs, and just sang with all their heart to God. And then we come to chapter 13. Despite all of this revival, despite all of this spiritual activity, the book closes very realistically. Right? Rather than go out on the high note of revival, I mean, we could have concluded right there at the end of the day of dedication. And we would have had the happy ending and our rating of Nehemiah would be off the charts, Right? But it seems like Nehemiah sides with the experts on this one. And he, he gives us a note of the reality of the challenges that they face trying to maintain that celebratory mindset and a, a, a moral integrity and a commitment to the centrality of worship. So it sounds familiar, doesn't it? It doesn't end in a way we expect or even want it to, but it ends in a way that we can personally understand and relate to. Many of us probably have a tendency to respond to frustration with making radical changes in our lives. Maybe we, we recognize that whatever we did in the past didn't work, and so we're going to try something new. And we tend to think that our problem is some external activity. You know, some missing component in our routine. In other words, we end up dealing with the fruit and neglecting the root problem. So most of us don't need to make radically new commitments. We need regular reminders of the priority of maintaining our most basic commitments. A commitment to sitting under the preaching of God's word a commitment to reading it regularly, a commitment to obeying God's word. These are basic commitments that we've already made and we so quickly lose sight of them. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this realistic conclusion to Nehemiah as we'll spend several weeks here talking about the, the reforms that Nehemiah instituted during um, the end of his ministry. Lord, we recognize areas in our lives where we need to also experience reformation. Maybe it's a simple reminder of the priority and the authority of your word. I pray that we would be convicted, that we would be encouraged, and ultimately that your gospel might comfort us with hope. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me, Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. On that day, 
they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the question that you immediately have to answer when you read this passage is, what was that day? On that day, and we've just finished the day of dedication, so maybe instinctively we think this is the same day, right, on the day of dedication. Did it occur then? Was it some experience after this gathering together of the choirs and the, and the singing, and then they realized, oh, wait, we still, we haven't separated. We haven't followed through on this. Uh, does it take place several years later? Most, and I, I would agree with them, most have suggested that this event takes place at least two to three years uh, or sometime, you know, some, sometime short, but a, a decent time after Nehemiah's first governorship. Now, if you go back to chapter 5, uh, verse 14 of Nehemiah, you read that he was the governor for 12 years. Nehemiah 5, 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Now, so he defines his first governorship there as being 12 years. The book opens with a reference to being the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, references it again in chapter 2, verse 1. So we know that, that he started his ministry there in the 20th year, and in the 32nd year he ends it. And then what we have in, at the end here in chapter 13, verse 6. So we didn't read it, but jump ahead to verse 6 with me, and we read this. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, remember that was the end of his first governorship, in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. Now, that event that's being described there in verse 6 takes place just before this event that's taking place in verses 1 through 3 that we've read about. This day of when they're reading the book of the law. There could be a number of reasons why they were celebrating on that day. It might have been just a regular gathering of the people. It might have been a particular feast day, but it does not appear to be the exact same day as the day of dedication. And in fact, it seems to be probably closer to 12 to 15 years later. I know that can be hard to understand, but that's what that, that seems to be the best um, explanation of these passages. His governorship lasted 12 years. We know that what takes place in verses 4 through 9 happens just before verses 1 through 3. And therefore, that day can just be a reference to a, a particular day of celebration where they read the book of Moses. Okay, so when Nehemiah, um, or if 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 this is correct, then the reforms really that are discussed throughout chapter 13 
are all taking place 12 to 15 years after that day of dedication. They're, they're after that first year of his ministry. Um, and we can assume that, that while Nehemiah was governor for 12 years, these reforms were not necessary. They had already made their commitments. They had already, you know, he, he was continuing to ensure that they were doing what they had committed to. So it seems to indicate that while he was away, which is, it just says sometime, after some time, I asked to come back to Jerusalem. So we're guessing that's anywhere from two to three years. It could be less, could be six months, but, it's, but it was enough time for them to completely lose sight of the commitments they had made. That's what's remarkable about it, is that the reforms that we're reading about here are things that they had committed to just over a decade prior. So what is the importance of, of this? Well, whatever these particular reforms that took place, they had to do with the purity of temple worship. It had to do with making sure that when they worshiped God, that he was receiving their exclusive worship. They, they, they were not syncretistic in their worship worshiping other gods, as they had been guilty of in the past. So specifically here, what's mentioned is no Ammonites or Moabites were allowed to enter the assembly. Now, this was clearly something which they were familiar with. It's, it's been referenced twice already in, in previous passages. They were familiar with the, uh, the need to separate and you may recall back on the day of corporate confession, which I emphasized was not a day that was on the calendar, but a day when they just decided we're going to get together. One of the ways they prepared for that, they fasted, they put on sackcloth, they put dirt on their heads, and they separated themselves from foreigners. And we explained then that their idea of, when it says that they separated from foreigners, we're not suggesting that they separated from people of another nation just without any distinction. They're separating from people who are worshiping false gods, whom some of them had married. They're separating themselves from people who, who should not be in the temple because they are not worshiping the God who they're gathered to worship. So there's confusion, right? There's a syncretistic worship that's taking place, and they're separating themselves from that. Uh, there are examples, however, of foreigners entering into the temple and being received into the community. Right? You have Ruth, the Moabites. In fact, one of the, the nations here that's, dis that's described as prohibited from entering, Ruth herself was from Moab. And she comes back with Naomi, her mother-in-law, and, and she ends up marrying into the family. And right at the beginning of Ruth, we read about the commitment she makes, this conversion story, really, where she says, your God will be my God. When, when that takes place, they continue to refer to her as Ruth the Moabitess to emphasize the fact that she was a foreigner, but she was honoring the true God, the one true God. And she was different. The same thing with Rahab. You have Rahab as an example of one who... who was from Jericho, was not a part of the covenant community, but because of her faithfulness and her trust in God to rescue her and save her, and, and uh, they, they receive her in to that family. 
uh, into their family. And so she was accepted into the assembly. So what is in, at stake here is not the idea of, you know, they're not just uh, despising foreign nations. They're, just, they're saying separate yourself before going into the assembly so that you worship God exclusively. In the Septuagint, the assembly of God is translated with the word ecclesia, which throughout the New Testament is referenced to the church. Right? They're saying this, this community, this church community, this assembly, belongs to those who worship God alone. And so this prohibition is in reference to, those, to, to foreigners gathering with the people during their corporate worship. The point is that the people have allowed false gods, the worship of false gods, to once again return into the temple. And somehow, those foreigners didn't feel out of place. It's, it's again, it, thinking about the timeline, it's remarkable. But what I want to emphasize in just this first verse is this. On the day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. All right, we'll look more closely in, at the prohibition in the next verse. We'll come back to, to what is meant by that. But notice what sparked this reform. Whatever day they had gathered, however many months or years after Nehemiah had departed, they were gathered to read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. It was a corporate gathering. And specifically, we know this passage, those three verses, or verses 1 through 3, basically summarize Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 5. There's identical language. It's a parallel. So more than likely, that's the passage they're reading from corporately. And so what led to their renewed conviction about separating was a reminder that the God they worshipped will not be mocked by compromise and syncretism. Right? They were reminded of it because they maintained, despite all their other flaws, they maintained the priority of reading and hearing God's word whenever they gathered. It was central to their lives. This was a basic commitment that governed their lives and oftentimes disrupted them. And so your presence here at church this morning reveals a similar conviction right, that the word of God should govern your life. You're committed to reading it personally, committed to reading it in your homes with your families. You're committed to sitting under its preaching in corporate worship. And I want to say you don't need a radically new commitment. But you should be reminded just how important this basic commitment is to your faith and practice. The regular and systematic reading of God's word, sitting under a steady diet of expository preaching, is God's will to equip you to glorify him in all that you do. And so allow God's word, working alongside God's spirit, to daily convict you of your sin. And comfort you with the hope of the gospel. Remember when Satan tempted Jesus to compromise God's will. How did, he, how did Jesus respond to that temptation? He also quoted from the book of Moses. 
specifically Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you know, as I do, that when I neglect to eat, when we neglect to eat, we experience hunger pangs, right? We start to crave food. More things start to entice us and, and sound good. Well, Similarly, your soul should respond with a longing for God's word because it cannot survive without it. First Peter 2.2 2 says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. In other words, crave God's word like a newborn infant craves milk that sustains life. It's that important to our souls. But along with reading God's word, these next two points will go faster, but along with reading God's word, we should know it. That's their second point. So read God's word, know God's word. Here's why we answer the question, or uh, where, this is where we answer the question about why they had to separate from foreigners. It says in verse 2, For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. All right, so a couple of things. The Ammonites and the Moabites were perpetual enemies of God's people throughout the Old Testament, right? These were the nations that resulted from the union of Lot with his daughters, that incestuous union of Lot with his daughters that you can read about right after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. However, Nehemiah doesn't focus on their origin, he, he references two reasons here um, of why they should not allow these nations to enter into the assembly of God. And really, these are just an example of, of all the nations. They're sort of uh, symbols of, of all foreigners because we see in, the, in verse 3, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So it wasn't as if it was just the Ammonites and Moabites that they were worried about. You can worship, you can worship the false gods from other nations, just not these two. Now that wasn't that. That's not the point. Right? They're just being used as an example here. But the Ammonites were guilty of the sin of omission. Specifically, it says they lacked basic compassion to provide food and water to the wandering Israelites. That's in Numbers twenty-one and Deuteronomy two. The Moabites, on the other hand, are guilty of the sin of commission. Right. So the Ammonites are guilty of not doing something, showing compassion to, other, uh, to another nation. And then the Moabites are guilty of hiring Balaam to curse the Israelites. One is sort of a passive disobedience, not doing anything. The other is an active disobedience, both disobeying God. They hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. You can read about that in Numbers 22 through 24. But even though God, God used that to bless the Israelites in the end, it was still proof of the wicked intentions that the Moabites had against God's people. And you read about false prophets and teachers that are condemned in the New Testament, oftentimes referenced as uh, referencing Balaam. So in 2 Peter 2, it says that uh, these false teachers that they were dealing with then followed the way of Balaam. In uh, Jude 11, it says that these false teachers that, the, they, that they were dealing with at, at that time abandoned themselves for the sake of gain 
to Balaam's heir. So these false teachers were compared to Balaam because they were apparently driven by greed. That's, that's Balaam's, that, that's, I mean, his sin was that he followed through, willing to bring curse, but, you know, trying to safeguard his reputation as one who would only speak on behalf of God. But he was doing so for financial gain. And it's repeatedly compared to the false teachers that they faced in the New Testament as well. Balaam's also referred to in Revelation 2.14 as Christ warns the church of Pergamum. However, there it's not about their need for financial gain, but the fact that the false teachers were encouraging idolatry and sexual immorality, which is the result of, of um, which does seem to be the result of Balaam's uh, curse upon them. You, read about in Numbers uh, 31. But what does all this have to do with us? Well, the point is that you cannot serve two masters. Friendship with the world is enmity with God, and they wanted to have both. They wanted to maintain their relationships with their foreign neighbors, to continue to uh, enter into treaties with them, marrying their daughters to them and bringing in their sons and, and just having, uh, just operating in the same way as the world does. And oftentimes this is a, di- a desire for earthly gain, for financial security, right? It leads us to, to worry about what would happen if we don't do this. What if, if, we, if we maintain some e- exclusive relationship with God Right? If we don't compromise our faith in some way, we'll be, we'll be the target of God's enemies. And so it leads us to commit the very same sins that are described here. How often are we will, unwilling to show compassion to our neighbor in need because we want to spend our time and our resources in ways that further our own comfort? How often has a church refused to practice discipline, separating those who don't belong from the assembly out of fear that they might be sued in a civil court? I know of several specific examples of that. Fear of the world, and so we compromise our faith. Compassion and discipline are never financially wise. It oftentimes brings division and loss of finances for a church. And because you deplete your resources for those in need who cannot return that same back, or you charge someone with, with uh, discipline, that causes them to leave. So they cost us. They cost those who practice them. But they're characteristics that produce fruit for the kingdom nonetheless. I I like what Raymond Brown says about this. He says, God corrects us as he identifies sins of omission and commission, which need to be put right. He encourages us by reminding us that he can turn life's curses into blessings and as with these Israelites, he urges us to rectify those things which damage our lives, hinder others, and disappoint him. So when we 
read God's word, when we know God's word, when we understand what's being described here and we apply it to our lives, we begin to interpret God's word rightly. Then it begins to renew us. We begin to renew our minds, as Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. In other words, you're not going to look or sound or act like the world. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so after reading and knowing God's word, there's only one option for the faithful disciple, and that's to obey God's word. Read God's word, know God's word, obey God's word. And that's what you see them doing in verse 3. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. They were quick to obey once they understood what was required. Now again, we, we quibble with this because we, we, we see their quickness to obey, but we also see just how quick they became corrupt to allow it. I mean, just back in chapter 10, verses 28 through 29, was another reference to their commitment. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the land of the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers and nobles and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our, uh, of the Lord, our Lord and his rules and his statutes. So you see there this commitment to separate and to obey. They, they make that obligation and they make it in no uncertain terms and then they seal their names to it. And they could not have been more committed based on our reading of those passages. And so apparently some part of the community was either being duplicitous at that point or in a very short order, some of them went and they wandered astray. They were hedging their bets, if you were, with, with foreign gods and foreign wives. They thought, just in case maybe this business in Jerusalem doesn't work out for our good, we can flee to other nations. And so it's important, as I've mentioned already, that this prohibition does not pertain to all foreigners without distinction. It targets foreigners who continue to worship the gods of their nation. Any foreigner who failed to worship Yahweh was excluded from the temple. Foreigners who adopted Yahweh as God were not required to separate. Derek Kidner says this, let him come as a convert like Ruth the Moabite and he will be entitled to a very different reception. Instead of separation, there's reception of someone who converts. And you can see that same, that distinction made in Ezra 6.21. So religious separation is necessary. We cannot syncretize our worship with other false religions. And if economic or political ambitions require religious compromise, then we must choose who we will serve. And certainly it's an ongoing point of tension in our day. How often are we willing to uphold our secular commitments that compete with our religious commitments? And this is reflected in the, in the depletion of, of churches across the nation over the past few years. 
that so many people have simply abandoned gathering together. Again, religious separation is necessary if we're going to honor God rightly. If, if these, amb- these political ambitions or secular commitments interfere, then we have to choose to serve God. The Old Testament saints were promised a time in the future when there would be no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Isaiah 56 said, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Notice it's saying the opposite here. Let not the foreigner, if the foreigner has joined himself to the Lord, let him not think that he'll ever be separated from him. Let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. In other words, fruitless. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted in, on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. It's a clear reference to the expansion of God's kingdom to all of the nations. And those who come to worship God rightly are received into the covenant community. And that was clearly a... a, a pointing forward to the fulfillment in Christ's first coming, and it awaits a full and a final consummation in glory where there will be no more need for separation. And we will be forever with the Lord. And so all of us, we, we are called to read, to understand or know and obey God's word. Celebration must be preserved, or as this chapter reveals we will quickly wander into rebellion. We long for the revival that we've just read about in the previous chapters. Yet the book closes with a reminder that in this life, revivals don't last forever. It's similar to the Lord Jesus Christ instituting the Lord's Supper with his closest companions. And just before he is betrayed and abandoned by all of them to suffer alone. We routinely find ourselves going from the pinnacle of joy to the depths of despair in this life. 
And all of it is a reminder to the, of the glory that awaits. Right? This life is filled with constant reality checks. We have not arrived. We are not home. And so let us remember what preserves us through it all is the gracious hand of the Lord working through his word and spirit to guide and to provide for our good and for his glory. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you just for the simple routine that week after week we gather together and the central piece of our worship is to open your word and to hear from you. May that be true in our lives on a daily basis. May that be true in our homes as we gather as families. Lord, where we have allowed neglect to creep in, may we be freshly convicted of that. And help us not to, to take our Bibles and to put them on the shelf until next week, but to open it daily, to meditate upon it. Lord, it's a, it's a basic commitment of the Christian life. And some of us need to be reminded of that, just how central and important it is to our faith and practice. Lord, renew our trust in you, renew our joy in the salvation that we read about in your word that you've revealed to us and the work that you've accomplished on our behalf. And, and help us to, to not just read it in order to check it off as a routine, but, but to read it in order to know it, in order to apply it to our lives and obey it. Lord, may it truly nourish us. May it be more important to us than bread and water. And may it sustain us spiritually through whatever trials lie ahead, of which we can expect many. And Lord, may all of them just deepen our communion with you and with one another as we bear one another's burdens and, and share in the suffering of Christ until we reach the glory that's been purchased for us, the inheritance that awaits, that is kept and reserved for us in heaven. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we respond to the singing of hymn 231. Whatever my God ordains is right.